Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. You're listening to Truly Criminal, the home of true crime. To see the video version of this case, including the footage and photos, you can find us on YouTube. Just search for Truly Criminal. Susanna Jane Lamplew, known as Susie, was born on the 3rd of May 1961 in Cheltenham, England, to parents Paul and Diana. She was named after actress Susanna York and had three siblings, Richard, Tamsin and Lizzie. Susie was eloquent and ambitious, with her father calling her enormously charismatic. She had worked as a beautician on the QE2 cruise ship before pursuing a career in the property business, and she worked as a negotiator for the estate agent's firm Sturgis. She would gain new clients and show them around available properties, When she got the job, she had written in her diary, I'm hired on the spot. She lived and worked in London and spent her free time with her boyfriend, Adam Leagood, and family and friends. On Saturday the 26th of July, 1986, Susie had been socialising and a photograph was taken during the evening, showing her smiling and enjoying herself. The following day, Susie had seen her mother to talk about her mother's visit to the theatre and Susie's recent windsurfing trip. Her mother Diana was concerned that maybe she was overdoing it and not taking enough time to relax. Susie laid her fears to rest and told her that life was for living. Monday, 28th of July, 1986 it was a gorgeous summer's day in London, as the busy capital awoke and went about its daily business. So did Susie. She woke up just before eight in her flat on Disraeli Road in Putney. Her roommate Nick said goodbye to her before he set off for work. She told him to have a good day and that she would see him in the evening when they both got home. She got dressed, putting on her grey skirt, dark jacket and heels, and at around 8.40am, Susie left her flat and drove to the office, just ten minutes away in the company car. After getting her morning work done, the 25-year-old estate agent left her Fulham office at 12.40pm, as she had an appointment to show a man, called Mr Kipper in her diary around a house, 37 Shorrells Road. This was routine and part of the day-to-day normalities of Susie's job. Five minutes later, her car was seen parked on Stevenage Road by a woman who lived in the house opposite. Her car was partly parked across the entrance to a garage. 
At 12.50, she was seen by a passerby standing by the gate of 37 Sherald's Road, and it appeared as though she was waiting for somebody. At 2pm, her car had been seen by a taxi driver, still parked on Stevenage Road, and by 3.30, the woman who lived opposite where her car was parked returned home, and Susie's car was still there. By that time, Susie still hadn't come back to the office, and had missed her other scheduled appointments. Her manager Mark became increasingly worried, and so he and a colleague headed to 37 Sherald's Road to see if she had accidentally become locked in the house. But she wasn't there. They began ringing local hospitals to see if she had been involved in an accident, but this too turned up nothing. Mark called her mother, saying, I don't want you to worry too much. Susie has not returned. Diana explained that she hadn't seen Susie either, and then she called her husband Paul to tell him that Susie's boss had been in touch, and that Susie hadn't come back. Her parents were immediately concerned by this out-of-character behaviour. At 5.30pm, the call was made to police, and she was officially reported as a missing person. By 9pm, officers were out on the streets, searching for Susie's vehicle. At one minute past ten, her Ford Fiesta was found by investigators. It was unlocked and still sat on Stevenage Road. The seat had been pushed back and was not in Susie's usual driving position. Her purse containing £15 in cash was still in the car, but the keys for 37 Charles Road and her own personal keys, were not there. To find and follow as many leads as possible, police began speaking to the people who were in the area at the same time that Susie was. At around 1pm, Harry Riglin, who lived in the house next door to 37 Charles Road, heard the front door close. He looked out of his window and saw a woman with a man, who stood at around 5 foot 9. Harry described the man as immaculately dressed in a suit. At the same time, another man came walking down Charles Road and noticed that the man was holding a bottle of champagne. This witness was able to provide a description of the man he had seen, which produced a photo fit. Harry Riglam was also able to provide police with a photo fit of the man. But the evidence presented was conflicting. A friend of Susie's, Barbara Whitfield, was cycling down Fulham Palace Road at 2.45pm. She was adamant that she had seen Susie in her car, driving in the opposite direction, with a man in the front seat. I'm sure it was Susie, because I knew her very well. Um, at the time, I was convinced it was her car as well, although it conceivably could be one that was just similar, they're quite common. I didn't get a chance to look at him, because she was turned towards him. Um, and anyway, I wasn't, I was concentrating on her rather than him. This was contrary to the witness, who said she had seen her car still parked on Stevenage Road that afternoon, and that it hadn't moved during that time. A van driver said he had seen her car driving erratically with a female driver and a male passenger, close to Sherald's Road. The pair appeared to be arguing, and so erratic was the driving the van driver had to swerve to avoid them. 
Her comb and lipstick were still in her office, and the dress that she had been working on in her flat was still on the sewing machine. There was nothing to indicate that she had decided to up and leave. The public and media interest in Susie's case was huge and immediate, and tips began to pour in from members of the public, and they needed to be investigated, in case any of them led to Susie. The tips were put onto a card indexing system, with more than 26,000 cards being held. One issue was that the photo that had been put out of Susie was not as up-to-date as it could have been, as it showed her with darker hair. The Friday prior to her disappearance, she had had her hair tinted blonde. She was being treated as a missing person, so known criminals were not initially looked into. There were so many leads to follow, the police were overstretched as the enormity of the task continued to mount. They were able to find and speak to all her previous clients in her diary, all except Mr Kipper. They traced the address that he had given to the estate agents, and there was nobody at the property of that name. After her disappearance, her parents made a TV appeal. We almost hope to think that she has... is somewhere with somebody who has abducted her and that he will let her free and that we'll find her. But as the days continued to pass, there was still no sign of Susie Lamplew. When looking into her personal life, there had been one man in particular that had left Susie on edge and nervous. She told her parents that he had been pursuing her by calling her and sending her flowers and asking to go into business with her. He had wanted to take her out, which her parents attempted to dissuade her from. She assured them that she would be fine, telling them she could handle it. Unfortunately... Susie didn't give her parents enough information that could help identify this unknown man. Shortly before her disappearance, Susie had talked to her uncle about this man too, expressing her anger over his refusal to take no for an answer. It had now been 12 weeks since Susie had last been seen, and, in an attempt to generate any new leads, her case would be featured on the show Crime Watch. It's now nearly 12 weeks since Susie Lamplew left her estate agent's office to meet a client and never returned. Perhaps the unusual nature of the crime, perhaps the fact that 25-year-old Susie was such an attractive, outgoing girl, kept the press constantly interested in her case. In fact, the stories about what happened to Susie are so many and varied that the facts have become somewhat obscured by rumour and gossip. The reconstruction you're about to see is based entirely on what is known, on police evidence and eyewitness reports. It begins in Putney, south-west London, on the morning of the day Susie disappeared. Crime Watch showed a reconstruction of Susie's last known movements to try and jog anyone's memory who may have seen her that day. 
Well, Detective Superintendent Carter, one of the strangest things is that, as we can see from the map, she parked her car in Stevenage Road, and yet she was going to an appointment in Chorrells Road. Why do you think that was? That is right. It takes uh, exactly five minutes from where she parked her car on Stevenage Road to Cheryl's Road. And we know that she arrived there, or the car was definitely seen at 12.45. What about the sighting of her, the third sighting, at about 2.45, by a friend of hers in the Fulham Palace Road? How do you account for that? Well, Miss Whitford is the only witness throughout this inquiry who actually knows. So, of course, her sighting has to be taken very seriously. Mm, it's a complete mystery. It was the last time she was seen alive, That you? is the last time, yes. What about the keys to 37 Shorrells Road and the property details? They've never been found, have they? No, when she le left the company, she took keys to the property of number 37 on this distinctive yellow fob. We still haven't found that. So perhaps somebody might have seen that. Um, could we have your description again of the man that Mr Doyle saw? I gather you're much happier with the description you got from him than perhaps the one that got more publicity of Mr Kipper earlier on. Yes, we're, we're looking for a type. I'm asking that people look for a type. He's aged 25 to 30. He has a dark complexion and we believe probably a broken nose. He has dark hair which is swept back and he was immaculately dressed in a charcoal dark suit. Do you think Susie knew him? Well, the fact that the car was at Stevenage and, Sher and Sherald's, she was seen later, indicates that she probably did know him, yes. Now, the other important thing is that a couple were seen arguing fiercely in that area, weren't they, by a man who hailed a cab, a taxi cab, later on? Yes, between 2 and 2.30, a taxi was held by a man who has a full beard and moustache. And he told the taxi driver he'd just witnessed a couple having an argument. Now, I'm appealing to that man to come forward, and, of course, I would like to eliminate the couple who, in fact, were having the argument. Mm, he might have vital information, mightn't he? He could well have vital information, yes. Now, this case has had so much publicity, as I said earlier on. A lot of people have come forward to help. There's been a lot of rumour and gossip, really. What do you think that tonight's reconstruction might achieve that all this publicity hasn't so far? Well, it's nearly 12 weeks since, since Susie disappeared. Now, I'm absolutely convinced that someone somewhere out there knows and can help us and I do earnestly appeal for that person to come forward. We just need that one call Mr Carter thank you very much. Do please call us if you have anything that might help. It's 01 811 8055 here to the studio 01 811 8055
Paul said that they were determined to do something that would be useful, something appropriate. What came out was something that we would call personal safety. That started because Susie disappeared in the workplace. So, we started working on personal safety for people at work. In June 1987, her mother told a television interviewer that her hope of finding Susie safe and well had faded. Do you believe that Susie is still alive? I don't expect to hear a phone call now, no. In October that year, the police announced that the inquiry into what had happened to Susie would begin to scale down. But the file on her case would continue to remain open. In 1992, Paul and Diana Lampley were awarded OBEs for their inspirational campaigning work with the Susie Lampley Trust. On the seventh anniversary of Susie's disappearance, in 1994, her father signed the required legal papers and she was officially declared dead. He said, In marks of finality, it releases us. It allows us to think of Susie as dead. We loved her very much, but we need to rebuild our lives. Her mother Diana said, We knew fairly soon that we would not see her again. It felt awfully final. I knew Susie could not have borne the desperation of being locked up as Stephanie Slater was able to, and she had no reason to go missing. Stephanie Slater was an estate agent who was kidnapped by a killer called Michael Sams, who had already abducted and murdered a woman named Julie Dart. Stephanie Slater was held captive for eight days in a makeshift coffin and repeatedly sexually assaulted. After a ransom had been paid, she was freed. Sams was later arrested after a huge manhunt and remains in prison to this day. In 1995, crime writer Christopher Berry D published a book called Unmasking Mr Kipper, claiming that Michael Sams was responsible for Susie's disappearance, but investigators discounted this theory. Controversy emerged when a book called The Susie Lamplew Story, written by Andrew Stephen, was published. The book presented a side of Susie as being lonely, unfulfilled sexually, and dealing with insecurities, contrary to what her parents had said about her, that she was confident and happy in her relationship with her boyfriend. The Lampleys hit back at the book, saying, That book made us lose all the nice things we could remember about our daughter. We had to rebuild our memories. In 1996, a stained glass window was dedicated to her at her parents' church in Richmond. Now the service at All Saints Church this Saturday is a memorial service. Have you given up hope of ever seeing Susie found alive? Oh yes, she has been presumed murdered and she has been declared dead. After ten very long years of allowing Susie to now fly free. In December 1999, Detective Superintendent Sean Sawyer took over the investigation. He requested that another Scotland Yard department look into Susie's case. The review was headed by Detective Chief Inspector Barry Webb, who had conducted the review into the unsolved murder of Crime Watch host and news presenter Jill Dando. Susie's mother said, We are delighted that the police are looking into it in this way. 
The case has remained unsolved for 13 years, and any review of new and old information can only help. It came as a complete surprise. We knew they were planning several different lines to bring in, but this is much bigger than we expected. It is nice to know where we are going. The review examined the decisions taken in the investigation, and looked at the lines of inquiry and the evidence that had been gathered so far. In May 2000, the police officially reopened the inquiry into what had happened to Susie Lamplew. Following this, 25 tips came through on the phones. They began to put the numerous information cards that they had gathered about Susie's case onto a computer system. Then, the police discovered something. Estate agents from Fulham said that a man had come into their offices using the name Mr Kipper. To try and generate more leads, police issued the more up-to-date photograph of Susie with the blonder hair, as opposed to the dark-haired photo that had been used when she first went missing. A new witness came forward. A man had been out jogging in Fulham that day, in Bishop's Park, before coming out onto Stevenage Road. He had seen a man and woman tussling in a car. The woman was blonde, and the car was a BMW. As the jogger came out of the park, the BMW sped down the road in front of him. The car then suddenly slammed on the brakes before someone in the car began repeatedly beeping the horn. He said it appeared that the woman in the car was laughing, but also said she could have been screaming. What was also interesting was that the steering wheel was on the left-hand side of the vehicle, while cars in the United Kingdom have the steering wheel on the right. Despite the best efforts of the police, they were never able to find the BMW. In 2001, police announced that they would begin re-examining the remains of more than 800 unidentified people to see if any of them could be Susie Lamplew. They would use DNA from Susie's parents and compare them to the DNA of the remains to try and find a match. The work was groundbreaking. The police and the Forensic Science Service had been developing the first DNA database, specifically for remains of unidentified people. Senior Officer Detective Chief Inspector Jim Dickey said, We are looking at every body that has been found in the UK for the last 15 years that has not been identified, including possible suicides, bodies washed up on the shore, found in rivers or in undergrowth, or died in the street. But unfortunately, this, like all of the other leads, would go nowhere. Many years had now passed since Susie's disappearance, and in November 2002, the police took the unusual decision to name their prime suspect, someone they had questioned before. A convicted murderer and sex offender, John Canaan. John Canaan had been born in Sutton Coalfield to a middle-class family in 1954. He was born to former RAF Flight Lieutenant Cyril Canaan and his wife Sheila, and was the firstborn of their three children. At the age of four, he was sent to a private school, and would later brag about how he was able to charm one of his teachers into giving him the biscuits that she had brought in. According to a documentary... 
His mother Sheila adored him, but his relationship with his father was fraught. At the age of just 14 years old, John Canaan was convicted of a sex attack. He had attacked a woman in a phone box in Birmingham and he would be placed on probation. He left school with only a few qualifications and, following a period in the Merchant Navy, he became a car dealer in Birmingham. Due to his notorious dishonesty, he would be given the nickname Billy Liar. In May 1978, John Canaan got married in Birmingham. In a documentary about John Canaan, reference was made to a horrifying series of sexual assaults committed shortly after. More than 20 women were attacked in two years and police set about trying to catch who was responsible. The modus operandi was always the same. When a house in the area went up for sale, a man would go to the property and attack the female owner. For the past two years, throughout the Midlands, police have been hunting a man who's become known as the house for sale rapist, who preys on women alone in properties being advertised for sale. John Canaan was not questioned, and nobody was arrested for the attacks. He began an affair with another woman, but when she told him that she would be spending Christmas with her ex-husband and children, he became consumed with jealousy, and she ended their relationship. He went to her house with a bottle of champagne, full of his usual charm. But, after she let him inside, he pulled a gun on her. She tried to escape, but fell down the stairs and was seriously injured. The police noted the incident as a domestic row, and she was taken to hospital to be treated for her injuries. Just two years after the wedding, and soon after the birth of their daughter, Canaan's marriage ended, and he would begin living in a bedsit in Birmingham. He would drink to excess, and his finances would take a downward spiral. He started committing armed robberies, with the first being in a petrol station shop close to his home, where he stole £260 but his crimes would soon take a far more sinister turn. He went into a knitwear shop and covered his face with a handkerchief. When he was approached by the shop assistant, he pulled a knife on her before leading her to the back room. He threatened that if she said a word, he would cut her up. Her baby was in the back room, and he also threatened that he would hurt her child if she didn't cooperate. He went through her bag and the cash box, but didn't find a large amount of money. The shop assistant's mother then came into the shop, and he held the knife to her too, and told her to face the wall with her daughter. The mother was tied up, before he turned his attention back to the shop assistant. He ordered her to strip, before brutally raping her. He even did this after she told him that she was pregnant. After the attack, he fled the scene. In a desperate bid to avoid being caught, he shaved off the middle of his thick eyebrows. But this didn't work, and John Canaan was arrested. He was sentenced to eight years in prison after entering a plea of guilty to charges of robbery and rape. He began his sentence in Bristol, where he was regularly attacked by fellow inmates due to the nature of his offending. As a result, he would be isolated from other prisoners for his own safety. 
The majority of his sentence would be served in Bristol, and he would then be moved to London. In January 1986, he was sent to a pre-release hostel attached to Wormwood Scrubs Prison, which gave him more freedom during the day. He had begun working as a porter at a company hiring out theatrical props. Those who worked with him were unaware of the nature of his offending and said that he was incredibly successful with women and found it easy to get dates. He would often brag about his ways with women and claimed to be dating an uptown woman called Susu. He also said that he was interested in buying a house in the Fulham area. Whilst at the prison hostel, John Canaan also had access to an expensive BMW and a red Sierra that he had borrowed from another prisoner. He would use the Sierra to visit Bournemouth and on one of these trips during the May Day bank holiday, a woman called Sandra Court would disappear. She was 27 years old and worked as an insurance clerk. She had left the Steps nightclub and was last seen at around 3am on Downton Close. She had no shoes on, appeared to be intoxicated, and was just yards away from the front door. At 7pm that day, her body was found in a ditch. The cause of death was strangulation. Ten days after Sandra's body was found, a letter was sent from Southampton to the police, describing her death as an accident. The letter was anonymous. What was unusual is that it appeared to have been written by someone who was left-handed, who had attempted to disguise it by using their right hand. Canaan was left-handed. In 2007, authors Christopher Berry D and Robin O'Dell wrote a book on John Canaan and received letters from him, which gave police something to compare to the anonymous letter they had received, with the handwriting allegedly bearing a resemblance. Canaan was questioned by police following her murder, but was adamant that he didn't know Sandra at all, and that he hadn't even been in the area at the time, but a parking ticket proved he had been in Bournemouth that day. But, other than that, there was no other evidence to link him to her death, and so nothing further would come of it. On Friday the 25th of July, John Canaan had served five years of his sentence, and he was officially released. That night, Susie had been out with her boyfriend. Adam and Susie had met at her flat and then got out to celebrate the end of the working week. They had a nice meal in a restaurant and discussed how their week had gone and what plans they had for the weekend. After the meal, they headed to the Prince of Wales pub for a drink. Whilst there, Susie was pickpocketed and several items, including her checkbook and cards, were stolen from her handbag. This was the same pub that John Canaan would often go into, and it was stated in a documentary the police had theorised that Canaan had been the one who had stolen from her that night. An anonymous caller telephoned her estate agents, saying they were a policeman and her stolen checkbook had been found. But that person was not a police officer. A police officer said that this had all the hallmarks of stalking. Just three days later, on the 25th of July, Susie Lamplew would disappear. 
Just a few days after her disappearance, Canan went to Bristol and rented a flat there. He would frequent the Avon Gorge Hotel wine bar to meet women, and he would always have the princess suite, costing £90 per night. He would always pay for the room in cash, and if that suite wasn't available, he wouldn't stay. The hotel was so close to his flat that spending that much money for a night there was unusual. He would later begin a relationship with ice skater Jilly Page. He had met her in the wine bar, and they had spent their time together, drinking champagne and sharing stories. But the happiness was not to last. He would always tell her to use a false name when she booked into hotels, and would also tell her not to disclose her location to friends or family. But she didn't do this, and would always tell her parents where she was going. In 1990, a lead in Susie's case came in that would blow it wide open. A woman came forward and said that she and John Canaan had been driving along the M5 to Birmingham and that he had pulled over to the side of the road by the disused Norton Barracks in Worcestershire. He gestured to an area and said that that was the kind of place where Susie Lamplew could be buried. He then put his hands around her neck and said, this is how she could have died. The woman with this information was Canaan's ex-girlfriend, Jilly Page. As they headed over to the barracks, he allegedly said to her, do you want to go where Susie went? He also allegedly told her that his nickname in prison was Kipper, matching the name of the elusive Mr Kipper from Susie's diary. The last time they met each other, He had told Jilly to pretend that she was his wife when checking in, and to use a fake name. But she hadn't done this. She said he hit the roof when he found out. Following the end of their relationship, and when the truth about Canaan's offending was brought to light, Jilly had a nervous breakdown. Despite the promise of the potential Norton Barracks lead, it was decided that the evidence was not strong enough to justify launching a huge search of such a vast area that required a massive amount of manpower and money. In November 1999, the Lamplews received a tip-off. The information came in through a phone call and a letter. The anonymous source said that Susie's body was in Norton Barracks. A housing estate had since been built on top of it, and the information was given to Scotland Yard. But again they agreed, there was not enough evidence to warrant excavating the site, and also, this information was not a new lead. Jim Dickey was leading the investigation, and he decided it was time to search Norton Barracks, and the efforts began over five days in December 2000. The task before them was huge. They were working against the elements over a vast area of land. They had used satellite imaging which could detect heat sources, potentially from human remains, or if any of the ground had been disturbed. The officers kept the land clues up to date with how the search was progressing and if they had got anywhere. Unfortunately, The search turned up nothing. Susie wasn't found, and her devastated family 
were back at square one. Just nine months before Jilly Page came forward to the police in 1990, Canan had been arrested on suspicion of rape again, this time of a housewife in Reading. She had been sitting in her car when he got in and forced her into the back before driving to an industrial estate and savagely raping her. He then calmly walked away and flagged down a taxi. The victim was left completely traumatised and was unable to pick him out of a lineup. He had affairs with several women at one time, including a female solicitor who had previously represented him. They had a relationship that lasted a year, but this too would fall apart, and he would make allegations about her to the law society and the police. September 1987 As part of his ploy to meet more women, he filmed a video for a dating agency using the fake name John Peterson. Do you admire any famous people? Yes, I've admired a few. Um, People like Gandhi, philosophers like Bertrand Russell, uh, present-day people like Prince Charles, who's socially aware, to people like Bob Geldorf. But I admire them, I don't idolise them. Career-wise, I've achieved what I've wanted to achieve. Yeah. I'm just now looking for what the next thing to achieve. Well, I think apart from the physical mm-hmm. side, um, again, I think somebody who's pleasant, mm-hmm. who's natural, um, who's relaxed, so somebody who's calm, you're just not, pleasant, you're just not really nice. You're no. Quite no, 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 no. Well, as somebody who's career-orientated myself, I couldn't mm. blame them for that. Yeah. Um, no, no, not at all. He was well-dressed, eloquent and charming. But in spite of this, the dating agency were left so uneasy about his video that they decided not to release it. The woman who conducted the interview with him would later say that she was grateful her husband had been there in the office that day and that she was thankful she hadn't been left alone with him. Just two days after filming the dating agency video, Canan had attempted to abduct a woman from her car at gunpoint, but she had successfully fought him off. She would later be able to positively identify him, but his sinister crime spree did not stop there. 8th of October, 1987. Shirley Banks, a textiles manager from Clifton, was out shopping at a Debenham store in Bristol. She had only just got married and was getting ready to meet her husband Richard and the pair would be going out for dinner. She failed to turn up. Her husband visited the local pubs to see if she was there, but she was nowhere to be found. The next morning, Richard phoned her office to see if she had gone in. They told him that 15 minutes earlier, at 9am, one of her colleagues had received a call from her. She explained that she was ill and wouldn't be in that day. Richard called the police. I did exactly what anybody in the same situation would would have done. I foolishly, from the start off, was at the same school of thought that they were, that things like this don't happen, um, and went through... um, 
every possible eventuality in my own mind and contacted every single person. And obviously one hopes that at any moment in time, something, the, the good news or the explanation will arrive, but unfortunately it didn't. An extensive search revealed nothing. Shirley Banks had disappeared without a trace. Three weeks later, in Leamington Spa, an arrest was made. A man had just attempted to rape two women in a shop before being chased off. He was found hiding in the toilets of a car showroom. John Canaan was finally in custody. His garage was searched, where Shirley Banks's mini was found. He had attempted to repaint it and change the vehicle number. His car was also searched, and it would be a clue in his briefcase that sealed his fate. It was the tax disc for Shirley's car, and a fake gun. He was adamant that she had never been inside his flat but one piece of evidence would unravel this lie. In his flat, a document was found that had Shirley's fingerprint on it. John Canaan had abducted her and held her captive for 18 hours. He had sexually assaulted and then killed her. He was subsequently charged with Shirley Banks's murder. Six months later, on Easter Sunday 1988... Human remains were found in Somerset by a couple walking their dog in a remote area called Dead Woman's Ditch. It was identified using five pieces of jewellery belonging to Shirley Banks. Her skull had been crushed with a rock. The fake number plate that John Canaan had put on Shirley's car also raised suspicions. It had been changed to SLP-386-S, with some thinking that the SLP was a reference to none other than Susie Lamplew. However, there was no computer link between the police investigating the murder of Shirley Banks and those looking into Susie Lamplew's disappearance. The first ones to make the link was the media and Susie Lamplew's mother and father, especially with the photo fit, saying it looked like Canaan. Police officers travelled to Bristol to talk to him. He told the questioning officer that Shirley Banks had been killed by a Bristol businessman, and when he was asked if he knew who that was, Canaan replied, I've met him. Retired Detective Chief Inspector Michael Barley said that he began to believe Canaan was the mystery man who had been pursuing Susie Lamplew and pressuring her to go into business with him. One of them asked why he had chosen SLP for the new number plate, and if he understood why it stood out to them. He said he did. When asked to elaborate on this, he said he knew it could have been interpreted to mean Susie Lamplew. He said that he had purchased the car in Bristol for £100 from this mystery businessman, and that the man he had bought it off was in a lot of trouble. He said that this man was responsible for the murders of Shirley Banks, Susie Lamplew, 
and another woman. The officer asked if that man was him. He said, yes, then began repeatedly saying, no, no, no. He became very emotional and the interview was halted. One of the interviewing police officers was feeling positive about his initial confession to being the man in question, but the other officer was not sure. He thought Canaan had simply made a mistake in saying yes. After recommencing the interview, the moment had gone. Canaan confessed to nothing. April 1989. Hallfield Prison in Bristol tonight. In the highest security wing, John Cannon, the man who killed Shirley Banks, is beginning a life sentence. For once, it'll mean just that. The judge told him at the age of 35 that he'd never come out of prison again. He's simply too dangerous. Cannon is responsible for a series of ruthless sex attacks but he'll always be remembered as the man who committed the murder of Shirley Banks. The judge said Cannon is violent, horrible, evil. As far as John Cannon is concerned, you know, I have no thoughts really at all. Is this a significant day in your life? Does it mean that you can start again? Um, I think it's probably less significant for me than it is for uh, everybody else, really, because it's just um, sort of confirming publicly what everybody involved with... Uh, the whole sort of horror of it is known for uh, getting on for two years. For Richard Banks, his family and close friends, it had been a painful three weeks, a period of despair, frustration and helplessness. Not only did they have to deal with their own emotions of grief and worry, but also the scrutiny of the press and the police investigations. Steve Wilson and his girlfriend Caroline Harris, who gave up work to be with Richard 24 hours a day, were so concerned with the way the police inquiry was going, they kept a day-to-day -day diary. Looking back, they say, there were moments of complete insensitivity. We, we stressed several times that Shirley was not the sort of girl who would disappear for, for a day or a minute even without someone knowing where she was. They took them a long time to appreciate that. They did appreciate it after asking hundreds and hundreds of friends. And uniformly, the answer was she wouldn't do that sort of thing. They were very slow to react to that. In the first couple of weeks, there were several incidents that you found particularly frustrating and showed signs, if you like, of police incompetence. Can you, can you remember those clearly? Perhaps the, the smallest, but perhaps the most um, symptomatic of the whole thing was a policeman knocking on Richard's door with a picture of Shirley saying, have you seen this woman? Extraordinary that that should happen. Over the last 18 months, the one man who got closest to Cannon was Chief Inspector Brian Saunders. He spent hours in interviews, and by the end, the two men were on first-name terms. But were the police too slow off the mark when Shirley Banks went missing? I think one thing about investigating a murder is that you do get to know the, the people involved very, very well. And in the early stages, you've got to check people out. That can be misunderstood. Um, I'd like to think at this stage, in fact, I'm confident at this stage, every person who was checked out, they, they are aware of the reasons and the necessities of it. And in fact, it did pay dividends at the trial. I think that's the, the reason we did it. His lawyer refuted claims of a connection between him and Susie, saying... We're all aware of the speculation that has been in the recent past. So far as my client is concerned, his instructions are that he has never met the lady. The interviews that followed would go nowhere. Canaan would always find out the first name of the officer interviewing him, 
and make a point of calling them that throughout the interview. He would attempt to gain control of the interviews and try and become the one asking questions. One of the investigators would later say that Canaan was not as intelligent as he believed he was. He was examined by psychiatrists, one of whom said that he could dispose of a human life with the same amount of emotion as someone throwing away a toffee wrapper. In April 1989, Scotland Yard said it had no evidence that linked Canaan and Susie. May 2000. John Canaan would be questioned. Detective Inspector Stuart Alt would lead the questioning. He would say in a documentary that the difference between Canaan on the dating video and the Canaan in front of him were two completely different people. He had gained weight and was no longer the smart and well-put-together man he once was. He had researched how Canaan had behaved in his previous interviews and was able to preempt any attempts he could make to gain control of the interview. Following the interview, the police decided they would search Shirley Banks' deposition site, Dead Woman's Ditch. Based on the fake number plate that he had put on Shirley's car, SLP-386S, it could have referred to a grid reference on an ordnance survey map, which was close to Dead Woman's Ditch. In spite of their best efforts, no trace of Susie Lampley was found. More time would pass before police had another breakthrough. A witness came forward saying they had seen a man peering through the window of Susie's estate agent's office just prior to her leaving. The witness said that the man bore a resemblance to John Canaan. The police put their case to the Crown Prosecution Service, also known as the CPS. The police and Susie's parents gave a statement about the CPS's decision. Uh, we submitted a file of evidence to the CPS in June of this year, recommending a prosecution. They recently advised us that they, they felt we had insufficient evidence at this time. This is a defining moment for our family. We are greatly distressed and indeed considerably angered that after all these years, it is still not possible to prosecute the person who both we and the police believe murdered Susie. Mrs Lampley, how do you feel that Mr Cannon could be released? I think the most important thing for us is that he should not be able to re-offend again. We are extremely concerned about that. But on the moment as it is, it's a long time. But um, it's a huge concern. Later that month, a story about Susie's case would hit the headlines. It was reported that a car, the Red Sierra, had been seized and that it could potentially be linked to her kidnapping. The car had been stored at a dealership in North London for several years. A police spokesman said, A further witness has come forward with new information, which officers view as significant. The witness told police that he lent a motor vehicle to one of the key suspects at the time that Susie Lampley disappeared. The car has been traced and is currently being forensically examined. Officers were hopeful that since scientific techniques and testing had come such a long way since her disappearance, this would give them the lead they were looking for. Susie's mother said, We are very pleased with the find, 
but we are trying not to be too pleased or excited. But it does look like a very significant move, and we are hopeful. In the car, they found two human hairs. One on the headrest, and one in the footwell. DNA testing revealed that there was a possibility that the hairs belonged to none other than Sandra Court, who had been murdered after a night out. The probability of it being Sandra's hair was around 40,000 to 1, which was not significant enough to put in front of a jury. Sadly, this was another lead that would go nowhere. In 2008, it was announced that the police were looking into another theory, a potential link between Susie's disappearance and the serial killer, Steve Wright. Wright, nicknamed the Suffolk Strangler, was convicted and given a whole life order for the murders of five sex workers in just one fortnight in 2006. Susie's father Paul said that he'd been contacted by the Metropolitan Police regarding the potential link between his daughter's case and Wright. Scotland Yard had been in touch with Suffolk Police to discuss it further, but emphasised that investigating any potential link was routine, and there was currently nothing suggesting that Wright had been involved in Susie's disappearance. Steve Wright and Susie Lamplew had actually known each other, They had first met on the cruise liner that Susie had worked on in the early 1980s. Wright would later open a pub in Brixton, and they would meet up with each other. Steve Wright's ex-wife spoke to the police, and would later tell the Daily Mail that when Susie disappeared, Wright had had shore leave. She also said, I'm sure Steve used the word kipper as slang for face. She also said that Wright had refused to admit that he even knew Susie when news of her going missing became national news. She said, I really want him to tell us if he killed Susie, for my peace of mind, for her family's sake. According to a report in Suffolk Live, Wright's father had even questioned his possible involvement in Susie's case, after he had found a photograph of the pair of them together in the 80s. In 2012, police ruled Steve Wright out of the disappearance of Susie Lamplew. In 2021, Susie's brother Richard said he wanted Steve Wright to be questioned by the police regarding her case. He said, I don't see any reason why police couldn't speak to Wright about Susie's murder. They're trying to solve another case and are probably concentrating on that one. Whether it's Canaan or Wright, I don't know. What's difficult is not knowing where she is. It would be lovely to find her, to have somewhere we could scatter her ashes. If Wright's dad thought he was a possibility, it would be good to know whether he was around at the time in Fulham and Putney. I think that would be the interesting thing, if he could be placed at the scene. In a 2019 interview, Kanan said, I am concerned that the police will use Susie's disappearance to undermine my parole prospects. My concern is that smearing me has become the rule, not the exception. I had no involvement in the disappearance of Susie Lamplew, adding the police were determined to use me as a convenient peg to hang the disappearance upon. 
Not all are in agreement as to whether or not John Canaan is involved. David Vidicetti, a former Scotland Yard detective, said, not a shred of evidence linked Canaan to Susie's case. He wrote a book called Finding Susie, after five years of research and said, From speaking to former officers who worked on the two previous investigations, I have found it widely accepted within the police that there is no evidence to support John Canaan ever knowing Susie Lamplew, or ever even meeting her. He had been investigating the case in a self-funded capacity for several years, and said that one piece of evidence in particular implied that Susie hadn't gone to the viewing. The set of keys for the house were found at the Sturgis office, and he said that any second set of keys for the property would have had the same key ring, suggesting that she had not gone to the appointment. He also said that he had spoken to the nephew of Harry Riglan, who had lived next door, and had seen a woman and a man at 37 Charles Road. He said that Riglan's nephew had said his uncle had never explicitly said that it was Susie he had seen. It is Vidicetti's belief that Mr Kipper was actually invented by Susie and didn't exist, giving her an excuse to run errands. In a statement, he said, I am assisting the Metropolitan Police's murder review group with information relating to the 1986 disappearance of estate agent Susie Lamplew. I have spoken to the Lamplew family to make them aware of these developments. My findings have led me to uncover an entirely different narrative to the one presented by the police, which I am now providing to the Met along with the evidence to support it. I do not believe Canaan was involved in either Susie's disappearance or what I suspect was her subsequent murder. Retired Detective Chief Superintendent Jim Dickey had worked on Susie's case for six years, and he disagreed, saying, I still firmly believe he is responsible for her killing. There is a lot of circumstantial evidence that points to him. I don't believe it's Steve Wright. If you look at his offending profile, it's all prostitutes. It's all geographically in the same area. I said some years ago that Wright is not in the frame. His offending profile just does not match at all. He also said, Canaan is still a suspect for the disappearance and murder of Susie Lamplew. Susie's brother Richard would say about Canaan, If it was Canaan who did it, then he's coming out on parole soon. I really don't want him to kill again. You always worry when they are released. That's the worry. If he's released, and then he wants to kill again. However, that's not going to bring my sister back but it would be lovely to have somewhere we could place her, rather than where whoever killed her has left her. It would be one of our family's dreams to find her. Susie's mother Diana believed that Canaan was responsible, but added, the evidence is circumstantial rather than forensic. October 29th, 2018 it was announced that police were searching a house in Sutton Coalfield, the same house that John Canaan's mother had once owned. Susie's brother Richard said finding her body would mean so much to her family and allow them to have a proper goodbye. He said, It has been a long time and we've had our expectations raised before, but it would be nice if we could finally have some closure. The search team included around 15 officers and staff, 
from the West Midlands Police Force and the Metropolitan Police Force, alongside an archaeologist. The police were looking at where the former garage had stood, and particularly the concrete underneath, said the house's current owner, Philip Carey. He also said that the house had been searched before, in 2003 and 2004. We knew the backstory from many years ago, um, and it's coming to the end of an investigation. If it ends the story, and so be it from our point of view, and we're, we're removed from the process, but if it puts someone at rest, so be it. That's, that's another good ending to this story. At the same time the searches were being carried out, Jim Dickey was interviewed by the BBC. We looked at John, John Canan and other suspects. We eliminated all the other suspects and John Canan was firmly in the frame for Susie's abduction and murder. And he still remains the main suspect to this day. We uncovered quite a lot of new evidence. We uh, pursued some of the old leads and there's no doubt that John Canan was on Fulham, was in Fulham on the day Susie went missing. He was Mr Kipper. If you look at the photo fit of Mr Kipper, that was John Canan. Uh, his modus operandi, uh, he's responsible for the murder of Shirley Banks in Bristol. He's raped a number of women. He's abducted a number of women. Um, it all uh, ties in with John Canan being the primary suspect. Canan's solicitor said, Mr Canan hopes that the search of his mother's former home will conclude swiftly, so as to bring an end to speculation as to his involvement in this matter. The search would span almost two weeks, but unfortunately... Susie was not found. In 2019, another search was carried out, this time in Pershaw. On the 3rd of July, a police cordon was put up along the B4084, and a dog unit and digger were brought in. In a statement, the Susie Lamplew Trust said, We hope that the current investigations will be successful and provide some resolution to Susie's case. On the 19th of July, the police announced that the search had revealed no new evidence. Thirty-five years on from her disappearance, the police said that her case remained active and urged anyone with information to come forward. Detective Chief Inspector Rebecca Reeves said, whether you saw something that you thought was unconnected at the time, or you felt under pressure to protect someone you know, it is not too late. The passage of time has not weakened our determination to seek justice and get the answers that the Lamplew family continue to wait for. They have always been supportive of our efforts to make progress in the investigation, and they have shown remarkable strength despite the immense sadness they have endured over the years. In June 2022, it was reported that a sample had been taken from a smudged fingerprint on Susie's abandoned car, and, as science and technology had advanced, there was a possibility of extracting a DNA profile. Retired Detective Superintendent Jim Dickey said, I am unaware if the DNA sample from the fingerprint has been progressed and whether there is sufficient evidence to test it without destroying it. 
My advice from the experts was scientific advances may improve sometime in the future, and DNA science may develop to enable testing without destroying it. I am unaware if this is still the case, or a review and test have taken place, and if so, what the result was. Certainly up to two or three years ago, this had not taken place. John Canaan is currently imprisoned at HMP Full Sutton, a top security prison in East Yorkshire. He should be eligible for parole in 2024, but the then Chief Justice Lane had said Canaan would probably never be safe to release. I don't really see, as things currently sound, what else there is to be said. Mrs Lamplew thinks I've done it. She's accused me of doing it. I have committed crime. I've done many things wrong in my life. Um, things that, believe me, I am genuinely sorry for. Um, one or two things I haven't been caught for. He has always denied any involvement in the case of Susie Lamplew, and denied the claims of his ex-girlfriend, Jilly Page. He wrote to Sutton News saying, May I please assure you, that whilst it is perfectly true that I did give ice skater Jilly Page a lift from Bristol to Birmingham, where both our families live, I did not at any time say that I had raped and killed Miss Lamplew. Following a stroke, Canaan became disabled and required a wheelchair. His health continued to decline, and it was reported in June 2022 that he was receiving palliative care. Retired Detective Chief Superintendent Jim Dickey said, The indications are that his time is limited. He has not got much quality of life. There is clearly not going to be any judicial process in the future, whatever information he gives up, before departing this world. There is an opportunity for Canaan to cleanse his soul, and above all, give solace to the Lamplew family. It is a chance for him to give them closure and bury Susie with dignity at a time and place of their choosing. He added, By telling the truth, there would be no sanction for Canaan on this earth now. But it could cleanse his conscience and allow him to make peace with God. It can't be easy to live with what he has done. In the years that followed Susie Lamplew's disappearance, the public and media interest in her case has never dampened. For years and years, Susie's mother and father were inundated with tips about where Susie could be, with all of them being handed to the police. In March 2003, Diana Lamplew suffered two strokes and was then diagnosed with Alzheimer's, resulting in her requiring specialist care. Paul would visit her every day and would go on to write a book about his experiences of navigating this new life following her Alzheimer's diagnosis. On the 18th of August 2011, following a stroke, she passed away in hospital at the age of 75. Speaking in 2016, Paul Lamplew said, I don't have very much hope that I will find out what happened. I miss Susie more now. I think the older I get, I miss her. I particularly remember a conversation when Diana was chiding her for doing too much. And she said, Come on, Mom. Life is for living. Paul Lamplew had been battling Parkinson's disease for several years, and on June 12, 2018, he passed away in his sleep, with his three surviving children by his bedside. 
Paul and Diana both passed before ever finding out what had happened to their beloved daughter. The work of the Susie Lamplew Trust has been nothing short of incredible. Over the past 30 years, the Trust has helped to train more than 50,000 people, set up the National Stalking Helpline, successfully led the campaign for private hire vehicle licensing in London, and helped campaign for the Protection from Harassment Act in 1997. Paul and Diana fought endlessly for their daughter's name to be remembered and to make an impact on personal safety and anti-stalking advocacy. They will forever be remembered for their determination, stoicism and grace in dealing with Susie's disappearance. The impact of Susie Lamplew's disappearance has been felt by so many people. It is the hope of those that knew and loved her that she will one day be found, so she can be laid to rest properly and that whoever is responsible for what happened to her will finally be brought to justice. If you would like to know more about the work of the Susie Lamplew Trust, we have left a link to their website in the description box. If you have any information relating to the disappearance or whereabouts of Susie Lamplew, please contact the relevant authorities. <laughs>